following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. If you're new with us, uh, my name is Dave York. I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, welcome to our church. Uh, we're so glad that you'd meet with us and hang out with us. Uh, this is our second Sunday here, um, and it looks like, uh, by God's grace, that this will be a, at least we know for 2023, a location that we'll be at the majority of the time. So uh, we praise God for that. Um, you can thank God for that. There are there are a few dates. Some of you ask, like, are there days when there's things going on that we can't use it? And that there's true, there are. Um, the good thing is that on those dates, potentially, we're probably going to be at the baseball field at one champion field. Um, get to gather together as well. Um, and there'll be some days when there's a play stuff going on here. And we'll have to close the screen. The Wizard of Oz stuff will be around and we'll do preaching and singing with the Wizard of Oz runners, right? I mean, be great, right? So it just sounds awesome, doesn't it? So, uh, uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, thanks for hanging in there. I've had several people ask me, um, how surprised was I about the church and last week and all those kind of things? And I have to admit, I wasn't surprised about the amount of people that were here. Roseburg is a grand opening city. Have you been to Chipotle lately, right? I mean, it was a nightmare trying to get cheese at Chipotle because we're a grand opening city. So last week, I knew that it would be a lot of people here. Plus, I knew what was going on in the life of our church. I think what I was more surprised by was uh, the feel. Just felt like home. Um, it was nice to be here hanging out together and, and being together. There is one thing, though, I want to remind you of. If you are a CLF member, and or you've been here for a while, you haven't been here for a while, or you call CLF your home, I just want to remind you of something that's really, really important as we gather together in a larger crowd. Um, since our inception as a church in 2003, that's 20 years ago now, we have been a church that has said we've done a few things well. We've, we've preached the gospel and tried to teach the Bible regularly, very clearly. But we've also done something that's very unique. We've loved each other well. That takes remarkable intentionality, not by leaders, but by the people who call this place their home. And so we're going to need everybody in this. As this thing is growing, there's more people that are coming in. We're going to need all of us to pitch in. That means, you know, when you're having the 10-minute break, rather than maybe thinking the break seems long, it'd be a good time to love somebody, right? Um, if you go out in the foyer, uh, part of the reason why we're funneling people to the foyer is that intentionality to say we are together in this. Remember, we named our church a fellowship because fellowship means joint participation. It is not 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. It is all of us together serving Christ together. And that has been a hallmark of CLF, a hallmark. And so, listen, we're going to continue to make it that. Um, and just because we're in a bigger venue with more people does not mean that stops. Matter of fact, it means it's just going to elevate all of us to do it better, right? Make sense? So let's be encouraged by that and, and be thinking about what God is doing uh, which is a pretty, pretty remarkable, right? All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of uh, Hebrews this morning. Hebrews. I know that's a shock to some of you. We'll talk about why in a moment. Um, <clears throat> we've been studying the book of Genesis. And if you, if you were with us from the beginning, one of the things that we've said in this series is when we see something that is interesting, we're going to just take a day or another Sunday and just pull out of the book of Genesis and talk about this theme or this idea that we've seen in the book of Genesis. And we've we've actually seen it in the last two weeks of our study. We studied the Genesis flood and we studied Noah's Ark and we came across this word called covenant. 
It's a word that we get first introduced to, and it's talked about in Genesis chapter 6. We see it again in Genesis chapter 9. And so today we're going to do something interesting. We're going to pull out of the book of Genesis, and we're going to do something that I'm praying will just, um, I'm praying it will help you see how faithful your God is to you. We're going to look at 4,000 years of biblical history and talk about the faithfulness of God to his people, culminating in it being revealed and and completed in the new covenant work of Christ. And my prayer is it will help you see how God works through that term covenant. Now, if you're new to Christianity, maybe you're exploring Christianity, maybe you've been a Christian for a very long time, this is remarkably important to you. Matter of fact, it was interesting last week, how many of you came to me after the church service and said, I don't know how much I've ever even thought about the Bible and the, its covenants. Well, my response to that is, you better be thinking about it. See, for me as a Christian man, it is important for me to understand that God is a covenant-keeping and covenant-making God. It's important for me to learn how to love my wife knowing that God is a covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. It's important as I raise my children, understanding that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And let me tell you as well, it's very important as I lead a church, knowing that God is a covenant-maker and he's a covenant-keeper. It is important for you to understand how God works through covenants. Maybe you have wondered, how does God see me? How does God see me? What does he, how does he, when he, when my name comes up on God's radar, which is every moment of every day, by the way, when your name comes up on God's radar, what does he think of you? Maybe you think that God goes, oh boy, it's him again. Or maybe you think, oh boy, that they blew it again. But understanding the covenants will help you see how God sees you. Maybe you've wondered, how does God treat others who don't believe in him? What does he do with that? Why is Jesus so important to God's relationship with us? See, what covenants show us is how God relates to humans and how he's done it from the beginning of time to the end of time. But it's also essential, understanding covenants is essential to understanding your Bible. In their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam wrote this. The covenants are not the central theme of Scripture. Listen to this. Instead, the covenants form the backbone of the Bible's meta-narrative, or the big story of the Bible, and thus it is essential to put them together correctly in order to discern the whole counsel of God accurately. Now, just for a moment, that's on the screen. Notice some phrases there. The backbone of the Bible's big story. It is essential to put them together correctly to correctly discern the whole counsel of God. Does that sound important? Yet, to be honest with you, we've allowed generations of Christians to go on without even understanding what the word covenant means. And if they hear the word covenant, they immediately assume cult. Or maybe something you saw of an alias when there was the covenant people that were underground doing their spy work, right? I mean... That's how we think of this term covenant instead of a biblical term that is revealing to us how God 
relates to us as humans. Now, covenant is basically an unchangeable agreement between God and humans that lays out the rules or guidelines of our relationship. It is God-given. It is God-directed. And as we're going to see this morning, only something that God could accomplish. And since covenants are the backbone of the Bible's big story, it is remarkably imperative that as Christians we learn this, we understand it, that we we at least get a, a handle on what are we seeing here. You know, I was thinking about this this week. As you think about the backbone theme, I was thinking, you know, trying to understand the Bible without understanding God's covenants is like trying to walk without a spine. I started thinking about how many Christians just feel like they're kind of flopping in the wind all the time. Could it be? Because what will put some spine in us, if you will, is understanding how God has worked through generations and years of centuries to reveal his faithfulness to his people that culminates in this wonderful new covenant that we have in Christ, right? So this morning, here's here's what I hope we're going to learn, and, and I hope we're going to be amazed at. And this is the big idea. This is in your notes. It'll come up on the screen for you. God has revealed his faithfulness through covenants and has committed himself to his people in love. God has revealed his faithfulness through covenants and has committed himself to his people in love. See, here's here's what this is important for you to hear and understand. When you blow it as a child of God, God's covenantal love toward you never changes. Wow, right? God does not look at your name on the radar screen and go, what a moron. Instead, God treats you as he would always through his covenantal faithfulness and love toward you. And he's been revealing this story from the book of Genesis. That's why we've got to see it. So let's stand together, squeaky seats and all. And we're going to read Hebrews 8, beginning of verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word and the hearing of the preaching of your word? And Spirit of the living God, would you apply all of this to our hearts? Open our ears and our eyes that we may discern and understand wonderful things in your book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, you may wonder, why why the book of Hebrews? Why do we look at this in the book of Hebrews? Well, we're going to get there later, but one thing you'll notice is, is that Hebrews, toward the end of the Bible, reveals something fascinating to us. It reveals that God has always thought of covenantal things from Genesis to the book of Hebrews. As a matter of fact, you're going to read about covenants in the book of Revelation. When you read your Bible, you'll see covenants in Genesis and you'll see it in Revelation. And Hebrews, Hebrews is a marvelous book. It, it is, it's the best book in the New Testament that reveals how the Old Testament is revealed and fulfilled in the New Testament. It is a glorious book to reveal how the Old Testament and New Testament work together in harmony. So if you've ever said to yourself, we don't need the Old Testament now because we're New Testament Christians, you are missing the majority of the story of the, of the Bible. They work together. What is hidden in the old is revealed in the new. And that's, that's a great lead in to our first point, which is the unfolding mystery. You'll see this on your outline and on the screen. Because as you study the book of Genesis, you remember, we, we've just been seeing the beginning of things. We've been seeing the origins. God is revealing things to us that are really important. We have seen the beginning of humanity as male and female. We've seen the beginning of work and industry. We've seen the beginning of family and even international conflicts. We've seen the beginnings of all of these things and more. But we've also noticed the beginning of God's plan to have a relationship with sinful human beings like you and I. Genesis reveals the power of God to create all things with a spoken word. It reveals to us the order of things that God has planned to put them in order, each according to their kind, and each day has night and day, and the sun rises and goes down. And it reveals to us as well our sin, how we have sinned against God as human beings. We saw this in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. But even in Genesis 3, when we see our sin, we also saw God's plan to restore us through this coming champion, this seed of the woman, as Genesis 3.15 tells us. See, what you see in the first three chapters of Genesis is you see God's unfolding his purposes to us. He is the lawgiver. We sinned against him. He has a plan to save us through a Genesis 3 champion born of a woman who would crush the head of our enemy, Satan himself. And we've seen in the book of Genesis, haven't we, that human sin is awful. We've seen brother murdering his brother. We've seen marriages fall apart. We've seen wickedness increasing. So that when we see wickedness increasing in our world, we as Christians can stop saying and stop being shocked by it because that's what happens in a Genesis 3 world is sin increases and it moves forward. We've seen that things are bad because of humans' sin. And we've seen that because things were so bad, 
God decided to judge the earth with a flood. That's what we saw in Genesis 4 through 6 and on through chapter 8 and 9. We saw that God saved one family of faith, Noah and his family, from God's wrath by God's grace when he closed them up in this ark that Noah had made. So what we have in Genesis is just a glimpse. We have this little picture of what God is doing. God will save humanity from his judgment by a Genesis 3 champion, and God will do it by his grace. But we're just getting a glimpse of it. We're just getting the starting, just the tip of the iceberg of it. But we're also seeing something else in Genesis. You're seeing the beginnings of a massive, universal, spiritual conflict between good and evil. We've seen a battle between us and God because of our sin. We've seen a battle between Satan and man where Satan deceives humans to take the fruit so he can begin to rule through sin. We've seen the battle as well kind of underneath the surface of between Satan and God. We're seeing this spiritual conflict being introduced to us at a very unique level. It's very just as origins of things. And we've seen that God has a plan and the plan to send a champion who will save humanity, not only from God's judgment, but who will crush the head of the serpent and God will smack down evil once and for all. We're beginning to see that, but we're only getting the beginning of the plan. Now, the reason this is important is because we're not given everything about that plan in the book of Genesis. I've had many of you ask me questions about things in the flood that have to do with something you're not going to read in the book of Genesis. See, we're only told parts of the story. We don't see everything that God has planned to save his people by this coming champion. And we don't see how he's going to ultimately, once and for all, conquer evil. We're just getting glimpses of it. And the reason for this is that God has progressively, over time, made clear his plan through the pages of the Bible and through human history. The Bible was written in such a way that over time, God revealed who he was and who the Genesis 3 champion is and how God would one day put away evil forever. So when you're reading your Bible, reading the book of Genesis, you need to understand that God is teaching in the Bible a developing history. He is progressively revealing his plan through each part of the Bible. With each book of the Bible, you're getting a new perspective or a new addition to what God has already said in his Bible. You're seeing parts of God's plan unfolding, revealing to you how he's going to save his people and how he's going to overcome and conquer evil. What's fascinating is he didn't reveal it all at one time so that each book of the Bible cannot stand on its own legs. He gave it to us over time, progressively, so that once you get an entire book, what do you have? You have the full disclosure of what's called the progressive revelation of God, revealing how God relates to humans. Now, one of the reasons this is important, because when you read your Bible, some things that you read will not make sense without other parts of the Bible. That's critical, because as we're studying Genesis, we're going to hit things that you're going to go, okay, that doesn't answer the full perspective, and I don't understand what that means and where it's coming from. 
because it's only an origin, a start of the story. You can't get the full scope of the story without the rest of the story. An example of this is when you read the Noah flood. I don't know about you, but God doesn't look very merciful in the Noah flood. I must be honest about that flood. Everybody who breathed that was outside of the ark died. Everybody, everything that breathed outside the ark died. It looks harsh. It looks cold. Except you have this one family who put their faith in the living God inside the ark that God saved. We can say God was merciful to the people of faith. Now, the original hearers of this story are going to do what? They're going to say, well, evil gets bad. God judges evil. And anybody who puts their faith in the living God will be saved by God's grace. That's true. But it doesn't give us everything about the mercy of God or the grace of God. For that, we need the rest of the Bible. So what you have in the Bible is this unfolding mystery. You have a God who created all things. He gave us laws. We as humans disobey every moment of every day, and we deserve the wrath of God. And God will redeem and save his people through a Genesis 3 champion, and God will restore all things back to paradise just like he promised. So what do you have in the Bible? You have it begins in a paradise, and it ends in a paradise. And you have this unfolding mystery all the way through the Bible revealing to you how God is going to do this. Now, one question I get asked often as a pastor and as somebody who believes in the spiritual gifts is this question. Okay, so then is God now today, since we have this closed canon of Scripture, is God still revealing to us how he relates to us as humans in the saving power of God? Is he still still giving us new things? My response to that is no. He's not. His canon is closed. The scripture is closed. But we're also told something fascinating in the book of Hebrews. There's that book again that said that that God's final revelation of how he relates to man is Jesus. And we're told in 2 Peter that God's divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. So listen. Everything we need to know about God's creation, about how God redeems and saves people, how God is going to restore all things, everything we need to know about our sin and what, how bad it looks in the eyes of God and how increasing it's going to be all over the world is found in the pages of Holy Scripture. God revealed this over time in biblical revelation. And what you'll find is 66 books of the Bible, we're going to see this more in a moment, are saying the same thing. The way God relates to humans is through covenants, and it's found ultimately in this wonderful covenant. That's a great lead-in to the second point, which is the covenants in the plan of God. So how do covenants fit in this progressive revelation of God? Remember, they're the backbone. It's the spine. So they're going to, they're going to make everything stand up on its edge. And you're going to see it. And you're see this storyline getting all the way to the new covenant. And why the new covenant is, as, as it says in Hebrews, is better. 
Throughout the Bible, over time, you're going to notice that God gives us covenants. Again, which are God-ordained promises in different parts of biblical history that unfold the mystery of how God will save us and conquer evil through this great champion that he promised us in Genesis chapter 3. Each covenant that was given in the Bible was suited for a particular time in the Bible's storyline of redemption. You need to understand that. So the covenants we're going to read, when these people received it, they received it as a covenant given to them. But over time, it exposes and reveals something that is profoundly amazing about the faithfulness of God toward his people. Each covenant, like each book of the Bible, does not reveal all the plans of God on their own, but each covenant progressively reveals a part of the plan of God and is finally realized in this new covenant that we walk in today as Christians. Now, for the sake of time, because we're going to cover, oh, I don't know, 4,000 years of biblical history, we're going to get, like, you know, in the Hubble telescope and look down, okay? That's what we're going to do. We're going to see this from a big picture thing. You're going to look at, we're going to see five major covenants in the Old Testament leading us to one major covenant and final covenant in the New Testament. We've already seen two covenants in the book of Genesis. We saw a covenant with Adam and Eve. That's called the creation covenant, some call it that, in the Garden of Eden. Even though the term covenant was not used, you'll notice something. God gave them specific rules to live by, and he told them if they didn't obey, they would die. So there's there's rules to live by. If you do them, you live. If you don't do them, you die. So, for example, they could eat of every tree in the garden except the one of, of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did, they would die. We saw in Genesis 3 what they do. They ate, and we saw in Genesis 5 they died. All that we're seeing there is covenantal implications. We're seeing God making a covenant with creation, with Adam and Eve, and telling them these are the stipulations of our relationship. But then we saw God's re-creation covenant with Noah. It was God's promise to never flood the again, never flood the earth again in judgment. And the sign of that was the rainbow. How many saw a rainbow this week and just thought of God's inverted arching bow, right? Yeah, somebody sent me a picture of a rainbow they'd taken back in December of 2022, I believe it was, and just said God's bow. And just another reminder, what a cool thing, right? That was God's covenant with with Noah. Now you're going to notice something about the covenant with Adam is it was obvious God demanded obedience or else. Some call that like a covenant of works. You work well and things will go well. You don't work well and you die. You obey, things go well. You don't obey and you die. Things don't go well. But you're also going to notice though in God's covenant with Noah something interesting. There were no obligations that God gave to Noah and his family. Basically just told them, get off the ark. They did their thing. They get off the ark. And then God said, hey, by the way, I'm never going to flood the earth again. And there's a rainbow in the sky. It's going to remind me of this. Some call that a covenant of grace. Meaning God is speaking grace without giving any obligations to man. God, in a sense, is going to do this. Now, both of these ideas, the covenant of works, covenant of grace, reveal how God relates to us as humans. See, God promises life for obedience and death for disobedience. I mean, the wages of sin is death. Doesn't work. You still see it, right? But the free gift of God is salvation in Jesus Christ. Right? Covenant of grace, right? You see it all in one little 
thing, right? So, but the but for the people of faith, like Noah, we who believe in the one true God, He promises grace. You see how God is relating with humans through these ideas of covenants. Now, a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, we're going to see another covenant with a guy named Abraham. This is about 400 years, or a little over 400 years after Noah. And we're going to read in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 of this covenant with Abraham. Now, the covenants with Adam and Noah were for all people everywhere. But the Abrahamic covenant was for him, for his offspring, and for a particular people. The people of faith. This was a promise of, to Abraham and all who followed him in faith that God would give them a promised land to dwell in eternally and he would be the father of a multitude of nations and his people would be a blessing to all nations all around them. Now what's interesting about this covenant is God sealed this covenant in a very fascinating way. He told Abraham to make an offering and cut some animals in half and separate them. And then God caused a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. So Abraham fell asleep. And then God walked through these sacrifices like a figure eight style, which is declaring the obligations of the Abrahamic covenant were on God, not on Abraham. You can see what it's called. It's called a covenant of grace. God will fulfill those covenant obligations. This covenant tells us something fascinating. God has a plan for his people of faith, and he will see to it that he will bless his people and his people will be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. Now, over 500 years later, in the book of Exodus, after the people are delivered out of the slavery from Egypt, by the power of God and the leadership of Moses, God made another covenant, now with the people of Israel, called the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant. Or the, uh, you know, they're on Mount Sinai where Moses is, but they call the Mosaic Covenant, Covenant with Israel. In this covenant found in Exodus 19 through 24, God gave them law, Ten Commandments, a moral code. He gave them a civil code of how they were supposed to live as a nation of people. He developed a religious system, their sacrificial system. He gave them a priesthood or their spiritual leaders. And the Mosaic Covenant was centered on that little thing you'll read in the Bible, the tabernacle or the temple. The temple was found in Jerusalem. Fascinatingly enough, you're going to do your history studies someday on this. You're going to find out. Something really interesting. This covenant was in full operation until the middle of the first century when the Romans ransacked the temple in Jerusalem, knocked it straight to the ground, and the priesthood and sacrificial system went with it. Never to be raised again. Now, what's interesting about the Mosaic Covenant is that it could be said that it's both a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And you go, how does that work? Because on the one hand, God gave us moral code, the Ten Commandments. But immediately after he gave the Ten Commandments, guess what God introduced? He introduced yearly sacrifices. Now, you to ask a question. Why would God introduce yearly sacrifices if he thought the people were going to obey? He introduced yearly sacrifices knowing the sinfulness of the human heart is going to do what? Here's the law, and we're going to look right at the law and go, yeah, not so much. We're going to do our own thing. And God said, I'm going to make annual yearly sacrifices to be paid because God knew that we would fail. So he planned to redeem his people through a blood sacrifice because he knew they would sin. That's called grace. See? And it's this covenant that is referred to many times 
in the New Testament as the Old Covenant. You can even see it when we read in Hebrews about him talking about when he delivered them out of the land of Egypt and what covenant that was. The reason it's called Old is because parts of it become Old in the age of a new covenant. We're going to see more about that in a moment. Now then, over 300 years after the Mosaic Covenant, after Israel entered the Promised Land, they had a rebellious king named King Saul, and he died. This this guy named David rises to the throne. You know David, right? Not this David, right? I mean, that David, right? The shepherd boy, giant slayer. I mean, the guy you'd say, this is a king now, right? I mean, rose to the throne, even though everybody looked at David and was like, ah, oh, not so much. He's not really that big of a deal. Yet God anointed him to be the king. And during King David's reign, Israel achieved enormous peace and prosperity, conquered all their known enemies, and Israel grew more at that time than any other time in their history. Today, you could go to Jerusalem, and guess what you're going to go to and find in Jerusalem? The tomb of King David, where people today still go and wait. And the reason is because we find another unfolding mystery coming to light in 2 Samuel 7 that there's going to be an eternal king. This is called the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised that David's kingdom would last forever under a forever king who would be David's son. The problem with this covenant is David shortly died. Some thought it was Solomon who actually built the temple in Jerusalem, the first temple in Jerusalem, but then Solomon died. And King David's sons through the years had died. But the promise of that covenant still remained in effect. Now what's fascinating is from each of these five covenants in biblical history, you will see something about how God relates to us as humans progressively being taught through every one of the covenants. God is the lawgiver. God obligates humans to obedience, but our sinful hearts keep us from obeying, and God provides grace through sacrifices made for us, and his people are a people of faith who look to him for life and forgiveness, and he will establish a kingdom that will never stop, and someone from David's family tree will sit on that throne. Does that sound like the gospel to you? And God's people will have an eternal home. In other words, God's unfolding mystery through the covenants is becoming more clear and more clear, which each moment of these covenants being revealed. God will save his people by his work and by his grace, and the Genesis 3 champion will become God's people's forever king. Now that gets us then to the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8 that we read about this morning. Now, Hebrews was written to a group of Christian Jews who were thinking in their minds about returning to the old covenant standards of animal sacrifices and the priestly system. Now, you can imagine, you cannot, you and I cannot imagine the pressure on these people in their time. The people who persecuted the Christians the most in the first century were not the Romans. They were the non-believing Jewish people. And when Jewish Christians came to faith in Christ, they were under enormous pressure to go back to the old way of thinking and the old covenant. So Hebrews is written to show them Jesus Christ is superior 
to anything you saw in the Old Covenant. He's superior to the priesthood. He's superior to the sacrifices. And he ultimately oversees a superior covenant. In other words, this is a book. It's written to show that Jesus is indeed the final revelation of how God will relate to us as humans. Friends, listen, if you are looking anywhere else to find out where and how does God relate to us as humans, you're not going to find it. The pages of Scripture progressively reveal to us how God relates to us as humans, and it finds its ultimate realization in Jesus Christ. And you're going to notice this in the text that we read this morning. You'll see in verse 6 that Jesus had inaugurated this new covenant, which is vastly superior to the old, but the reason is because Jesus has a better ministry because his covenant is better because it has better promises. We'll cover that more in a moment. And Jesus is the covenant's mediator. Now, mediator just means he's the lawyer or advocate standing on the side of humans. I mean, just for a moment, think about that, that your God, your Savior, Jesus Christ, right now, if there's a court of heaven, is standing as your defense attorney, arguing your case before the living God and has already said debt is paid. That's what this means. Verse 7 says something fascinating, that the first covenant had been faultless. We'd not need a second one. So you have to ask, when you read this, you got to ask the question, what's the first covenant? We've looked at five of them. What's the first covenant? How, how did it have a fault? And there are tons of thoughts on this, right? Let me just give you two thoughts I think are very plausible, that I think are truthful, and I think they are faithful to the text of Scripture. The first one is that one covenant is... The old covenant of works, where we as humans are have to obey or die. And the fault is human sinfulness. Humans must obey to receive the full blessings of God, but because we are sinful to the core, we can't. That's one idea. The other idea, which you're going to find where similarities, is that this old covenant is the Mosaic covenant that was given to Israel from Exodus 19 through 24. And the fault with the Mosaic Covenant isn't the law. See, we love to do that as as Americans. We love to say the fault is the law. No, the fault was not the law. The fault was the sinfulness of humans and our lack of ability to obey it and the lack of power in the priest, the sacrifices, or the law to change us to obey the law. It's a big difference. Because what a lot of Christians like to say today is, we're not under law, we're under grace. Which means, by nature, I don't have any law in my life. What? That sounds ridiculous. So you can go be as unfaithful to your wife as you possibly want to be? No. But that's in the Ten Commandments, so you're just ruling out that Ten Commandment because you're under the age of grace. So the problem in the Mosaic Covenant is not the law, it's the sinfulness of the human heart. Now, what you're going to notice in both of these these ideas, they capture something that is not good. Our sinfulness is bad, and we as humans cannot be trusted to obey God. I hope you know that about yourself. People ask me, like, man, what are you, are you excited about what God's doing in the church and in the world and all the things? I said, yeah, the first thing I pray for every day when I get up out of bed is, God, help me not screw it up. 
because I know what's in the heart of me. See, the problem is this reveals to us sinfulness is bad and we as humans cannot be trusted to obey God. We don't have the power to save ourselves from this dilemma. The Mosaic Covenant doesn't have that power. Neither does the covenant of works. The old covenant could not transform our hearts. The law is good, but our sin is bad. We've got to see that. The law is good and righteous and holy according to Romans chapter 7, but our sin is bad. And the sacrifices and the priest were never intended to transform our hearts. They were intended instead by God to point to the new covenant down the road of something that is coming that is not annual and yearly, but is eternal. So, enter the new covenant in Jesus. You know something interesting in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 8, is the writer of Hebrews, he quotes the Old Testament. I love this because a lot of my brothers say, oh, the, the old covenant we don't ever listen to, the old testament we don't ever listen to, and we don't ever listen to it because it's in the old. And I go, well, wait a minute. But he, the writer of Hebrews is talking about a new covenant, and it's found in the Old Testament. What are you going to do with that? Because that was holy scripture to them. And he quotes Jeremiah 31 where he says that God would start a new covenant with his people. And notice some things about it. It would not be like the old covenant, meaning it's not going to have the same powerless ability. But notice what God will do. God would put his law into people's minds, and God would write it on his people's hearts, indicating this new covenant now has a unique power. There's something in the new covenant that will transform the human heart to give the human sinful heart the ability to obey God from their heart. And God would be their God. They would be his people, and he would reside with them forever. You'll read later in the book of Hebrews where it says, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know what Jesus is, you know what the writer of Hebrews is quoting there? He's quoting the idea in Jeremiah 31 that God has made a covenant, new covenant with his people saying, I will always reside with you and I'm not going anywhere. And all his people will know the Lord as their God from the youngest to the oldest, meaning we don't have to browbeat people to know God. If you're one of God's people, you will know him because the spirit of God will be at work in you. And notice this last phrase that God would be merciful and will remember sins no more. You know what that means, don't you? You think that when you approach God, that God is remembering all the things that you did yesterday or two years ago or the bad sins that you did. This is telling you that when you approach the living God and you are a person of faith, God chooses to no longer remember your sin. Now, he's omniscient, means he he knows, but he chooses to say, doesn't matter anymore. Now, in this new covenant, which is greater, has greater promises than the old, Jesus, the Genesis 3 champion and king of his people, has come. He perfectly obeyed God in our place, obeying the law perfectly. 
He died as a human to satisfy the wrath of God because the wages of sin is death. And he rose again from the dead, proving he's the eternal son of God. And what you're going to find in progressive revelation is that he has also put his foot on the throat of our eternal adversary, Satan himself, and he's overcome him through the power of the cross and through the power of resurrection. And Jesus' people are those who put their faith in Jesus as their Savior and King and are saved from God's wrath by God's grace. God's people are granted forgiveness where he no longer remembers their sin anymore. They're given the power of his presence, the Holy Spirit, who does what? He writes the law of God on our hearts, and he is always reminding us what? You are God's children. You're calling him Father, and he's always doing what? He's telling us over and over and over again, you are mine. The new covenant in Jesus is the final forever covenant that God made with his people. And listen, it is better than the old because it has better promises. But the old covenants help us see this. You can't, you cannot be blown away by the new covenant if you are not tracking the old and being amazed at what God has revealed over Time. You're going to notice something fascinating in the new covenant. All the covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus. People will say things like, well, what do you believe about fulfillment theology, replacement theology? My response is, I think that everything is fulfilled in Christ. Everything. Everything is fulfilled. In Christ, he is the yes and amen of all the promises of God. And God's progressive revelation through the covenants shows us right now in the 21st century that God's final revelation is Jesus. And that's how he relates with us as human. And you've seen it progressively over time. Now, again, listen to Stephen Wellam. This will this will just stir your heart if you've tracked with me on this. The fulfillment of the previous covenants is as such greater. Since all of the covenants are part of God's one plan, no covenant is unrelated to what preceded it. And no covenant makes sense apart from its fulfillment in Christ. No doubt new covenant fulfillment involves an already not yet aspect to it. Yet what the previous covenants revealed, anticipated, and predicted is now here. This is why Jesus is, listen, and here if you can't hear the, the covenants, the last Adam and the head of the new creation. The true seed and the offspring of Abraham, who brings blessings to the nations. The true Israel fulfilling all that she failed to be. And David's greater son, who rules the nations and the entire creation as Lord. Do you see? See, do you see? Now that all leads us to one final short conclusion. God is the covenant maker, and he's the covenant keeper. Throughout this biblical covenantal story, you'll find something very clear. Humans are covenant breakers. God is the covenant keeper. That's what you're going to find, right? That's one reason why I have such a hard time with when we open our Bibles and we say, okay, let's look at King David and look at how faithful and wonderful and God-fearing David is and just model ourselves after David's life. You know, well, okay, well, 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 what's that stuff? You know, David had multiple wives. David, 
David murdered somebody. He was an adulterer. Okay. Is the story about David? Or is the story about God? See? The story's about God getting the Genesis 3 champion through David's line all the way to Jesus. See, we don't, we gotta see that. That's why we'd say we gotta be God-centered in our thinking. See? God is the covenant keeper. Humans are the covenant breakers. You'll see this all throughout the Bible. That's why when you read this stuff about Israel, you go, what in the world are these people doing? They're covenant breakers. But who do they, who do they emulate? Who do they review? Who's the example of? That's us. That's humans everywhere. And you'll find that when we fail to keep God's covenant, you're going to find something fascinating. We attempt to do something that was in all the old covenants. Just like Adam before us, what do we do? We sin, and in our shame and guilt, we try to cover it with our own fig leaves of our good works and our good deeds so that maybe God somehow won't notice. Or like Moses' people, we make sacrifices to appease God somehow by paying him back. By We really need to let out some blood so that God would know we're serious. Or like David's people, which has been our challenge in America for the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years, we think that our hope will be found in a soon-coming king or president. We're living nothing more than just living in the old covenants. And what we find at the end of all of those things is disappointment and misery and frustration, and we wonder why. It's because we're trying to to work and relate to God on ways that God said isn't going to work in the old covenants. From before time began, God planned to save us from this misery. His plan, the mystery of the ages, is how God will redeem people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and he will dwell with them as his people, and he will relate to us on friendly, wonderful terms as our Father and our God and our King. And Paul wrote about this in Colossians chapter 1. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Saints, this should have been revealed to you today. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what's the mystery? The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow, do you see this? Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, what what the creation covenant, the Noah covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all progressively declare, they all just progressively proclare, God relates to us through Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you're aware, right? When Peter, Peter wrote about this stuff, and he said, this is the stuff that angels are longing to look into. I mean, the angels are looking at this stuff going, how is God going to relate to humans who are sinful? And God says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and it's going to start back here in creation, and I'm going to reveal it in Noah, I'm going to show it in Abraham, I'm going to reveal it in Moses, I'm going to show it in David, and I'm going to finalize it in Christ. Wow! What Genesis began to reveal, Christ explodes on the scene as the final revelation of God. Do you see? 
Who could have thought of this? Who could have dreamed this up? So somebody tells you the Bible's a man-made book, you say it's because you don't understand the unfolding mystery. The reason the Bible is God-breathed and authoritative and inspired is because it, it, can, it has to be God-breathed, authoritative, and inspired to reveal this work from beginning to end. As John Calvin would say, the Bible is the word of God because it reveals the heavenliness of the matter that no human mind could have conceived. What incredible, what you're holding in your hands is God revealing to you how he relates to you, to humans. Only God could have done this. Only God could have thought of this because he's, he alone is the covenant maker, the covenant keeper from beginning to end. Now, now just process it. That means the unfolding mystery of God being faithful to his people in covenantal love started in Adam, is revealed in Noah, is shown to us in Abraham, is given to us as well in Moses, is revealed to us in David, and then it finalizes and completes itself in Christ. So, so then if you're a child of God who believes in Christ, that means when your God says, he will remember your sins no more. He means it. That means when you feel alone and he says that he will never leave you nor forsake you, he means it. That means in Ephesians chapter 1 when he said that he sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit until the day of redemption so that you would know that you are his because the Spirit will tell you that you are his, he means that is true. Why? It's a final revealed Thing that reveals to you God has revealed his faithfulness over time in all of his covenants and it reveals he has latched on to his people in covenantal love. That's how he relates to us. So Christian, listen, when, when you open your Bible this week, you're opening the unfolding mystery of God. When you're struggling with your sin this week, you can go to your God knowing how he relates to you based on covenantal love. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're here and you're going, man, I, I, I've never seen this love of God before on display. That's the point. It's the kindness of God that would bring you to salvation and repentance. And we would just tell you the most loving being in all the universe is God in heaven. And the way to be reconciled to him and to know him is to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, as the final revealer of the covenant of God. And we'd love to talk with you about that. After service, grab one of us. We'd love to chat with you. One of my friends, I don't know how many of you are here, a bunch of you, and you're here. You can talk to someone about Jesus. We'd love to do it. But listen, Christian, latch on to the fact that your God has revealed to himself faithfully over time that he's committed to you and love and Christ is the revealer of this. He completes it. What glorious, great news that is. Let's pray.
I'm assuming that as I've prepared this week, I just thought about people that feel lonely. And you're a believer and you feel that God has somehow left you. And this morning, I just want to remind you of God's covenantal love and faithfulness to you. Your God will never leave you nor forsake you. Maybe some of you have struggled with jobs and making ends meet, and you have wrestled with how, where is God and his faithfulness toward you? And I just want to remind you that in God's covenantal love toward you in Christ, he paid for your greatest debt and your greatest pain, which is your sin. And he promises that in Christ, he will meet your needs like milk and bread. And you know, based on his covenantal faithfulness, that he will surely do it. Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus, and we would just tell you right now, just bow your head before the Lord and say, God, I believe in Christ. I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want to trust you. I want to believe in you with all my heart. And commit yourself just to talking to somebody before you go. Father, we... We need to be reminded that you are faithful. You have been faithful from before time began to accomplish and finalize everything in Christ. And we, your people, rejoice. Rejoice in your finished work in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.